And good morning. There we go. If you have your copy of God's word, please flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're continuing our series through Hebrews together. Jesus is better than. As you're turning to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning of verse 26 this morning, I just want to pause and say a hearty thank you to Kyle Wellmaker, who received a text message from me late, late. I said it was Friday afternoon. He corrected me and pointed out how much further into the evening it was on Friday um, that I would not be well enough to be here last Sunday. And he was able to pull together the excellent sermon that you heard last Sunday in a two-day turnaround period and switch off and have TJ do all the music so that he wouldn't have to do double duty. And so I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And we should delight in the fact that we are in a congregation where that can happen. Because I have a lot of friends in ministry who, if they came to realize that less than two days before they were supposed to preach, they would not be able to, it wouldn't have gone like that. And so we need to delight in the Lord and be thankful that we have such here at Sylvania Church. So this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26 It says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the son of God? And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the, uh, the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for its truth. Father, we thank you for its transforming power. Father, I pray today that we would have ears to hear, that our hearts would be soft, that our minds would be open to the power of your word. Father, often your word points things out to us, shows us things, instructs instructs us in ways that we are not comfortable with. Father, may we yield to the authority of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so this morning, we have Jesus, the better hope for the future. I don't know about you, but 
right now, the world's kind of a weird place. Yeah, at least get an amen on that. I mean, if this is normal for you, I'm so sorry. The, the world's kind of a weird place. You know, it's just, I, it's just wild right now, you know, and I, I kind of am, am been longing a lot lately, like John, come quickly, Lord Jesus, you know, um, I looked over at Miss Paulette cause I knew she'd say amen to that. So there is a better hope for the future. And it's not in political campaigns or slogans. It's not in increased GDP. It's not in, in increased economy. It's not in cre- increased education. It's not in increased goodwill. There is a better hope for the future, and that's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the writer to Hebrews is addressing this particular audience. And this particular audience is struggling and they're suffering and they're going through hardships and difficulties. And all the while, they're also struggling with their faith. I think a lot of times we have the misconception that when we hear about the suffering and the struggling that people are enduring because of the gospel, it necessarily means that everything is just spot on in their world with their faith. And that's just not the case. Not only are they struggling by receiving persecution and suffering for being Christians, many of them are also struggling with the notion of being a Christian. And is the struggle worth it? And is the suffering worth it? And wouldn't it just be easier to go back to Egypt, be a slave, to enjoy the fat of the land, and to just kind of shirk off this Jesus thing? Because it's what's making it hard for me in the first place. Wouldn't it be easier if I just yielded a little bit to the way the world thinks that I ought to be? Maybe I could negotiate some of the finer points of my faith and write them off and excuse them away. And maybe that would make things easier for me. So the writer to the Hebrews starts midway through here from where we were. Speaking about Christ and the judgment. And he points out that if we go on sinning willfully. That this terrifying thing will happen. Terrifying thing. If we go on willfully sinning. If we continue to look at the will of God. As revealed to us in his word. As made manifest to us in our inner being through the power of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. If we continue to walk away from those things that God has made clear. Says that there is no place for sacrifice anymore. No sacrifice remains for our sins. And that we should have the terrifying verse 27 expectation of judgment. And I know what happens a lot of time. People say, but no, listen, judgment is for the lost. Judgment is for people outside of the church. Judgment is for people. We receive discipline, not judgment. That's what Christ has saved us from. And yet here in Hebrews. Multiple times on multiple occasions, it makes a declaration of judgment that begins with the house of the Lord. Why? Because not everyone who walks through the door 
claiming the name of Jesus is actually a Christian. Just because you showed up here this morning. Doesn't by default mean that you're walking rightly with the Lord. You say, well, how do I know? I want confidence. I want assurance. Well, one place that you can start with is that you're not one who goes on willfully sinning. There's a great problem historically in Protestant churches. And it was birthed when the Protestant Reformation was birthed. And we don't like to talk about it much as those who are from the heritage of Protestantism. But there was a massive theological and practical problem that was birthed in the Protestant Reformation. It was this. Because we affirm the sovereignty of God and salvation. Because we affirm that it is wholly and completely a work of God. We tend to also embrace the false notion that we have no responsibility at all to rightly walk with the Lord. And the scripture makes it very clear. That if I claim the name of Jesus, if I claim that I've left the city of man and I'm moving toward the city of God and I'm walking on the narrow pathway and all I do as I walk that narrow pathway is show through my life my despise and hatred for all of the things of God and how I act. I'm greedy and I'm selfish and I'm rude and I'm disrespectful and I have a sharp tongue and I have a a double mindedness about me and I'm prideful and I'm arrogant. And I, I and I'm I'm just all of the things that the scripture just lays out that people who are in Christ should not be. And I constantly make the choice to be all of those things. Why would I think that I am in Christ at all? If we go on willfully sinning. We should have the terrible expectation of judgment. You say, well, all of us are sinners, Philip. You've made that about as clear as you can in almost every sermon you've ever preached in this church, that we're all sinners. And I would say, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord to that. We are indeed all sinners. So how then, how then does that work? How is it that I am still a sinner and I still struggle with my sin, yet if I keep dwelling in my sin, I'm clearly not in Christ. This, this seems to be a, a no-win situation. No, friends, the difference is that beautiful word that's included in this text, willfully. The difference between the one who is in Christ and the one who is not is that when the one who is in Christ sins, they see their sin, they acknowledge their sin, the spirit convicts them of their sin, the community that they're living in points out their sin and they acknowledge their sin. They are broken over their sin. They long to be free from their sin. They recognize that they are still struggling with the flesh and even if it means they have to crawl alongside of other gracious travelers, they will acknowledge their brokenness and they will call out on the Lord and they will beg and they will plead and they will set up whatever is necessary. Jesus using the severe language of even cutting off their right hand or plucking out their right eye. If that is what is necessary for them to flee from the sin that so easily entangles them, the one who is not in Christ will self-justify and find a reason why their sin is not sin. And the author to the Hebrews tells us 
that there is no mercy. If there's no mercy for violating the law of Moses, verse 28, how much more severe is it for those? And it lists three things who trample underfoot the son of God. Who regard as unclean the blood of the covenant. And who continue to insult the spirit of grace. If there's no mercy to be found when you break the law of Moses. How much more severe will it be? If we step on the blood of Jesus Christ. If we are presented with the graciousness of the gospel that is supposed to be transformative and life altering. And we presume upon the grace of God and we step on the head of Jesus to walk toward whatever it is we desire for ourselves, ignoring all of the warnings and ignoring all of the truth of transformation and ignoring all of the glory of the gospel. How much more severe will judgment be for us? And then they cite the Old Testament passage. Beautiful passage from Deuteronomy 32. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. And then comes that harsh and severe verse found in verse 31 of our text. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what does the writer to the Hebrews do here? Does he stop and just leave that terrible feeling and that terrible taste in everyone's mouth? No. Notice here in the transition of verse 32. It says, but remember the former days. Notice what it says. It says, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict Of sufferings. You were enduring conflict and suffering as a believer. Listen, I don't have a martyr complex. Nor do I have a persuasion toward persecution. But as a person who studied a lot of church history. I found it to be generally true. That the less the church suffers, the more wretchedly sinful she usually is. And if the church were to ever find herself in an environment where she could not only escape suffering, but actually battle against suffering through prominence, power, and political prestige... She would not only be wretchedly sinful, but more times than not become completely false altogether. And we see that in medieval Christianity. And what became known as the Holy Roman Empire. Church itself ceased to be the true church any longer. Because not only did the church not suffer The church had the avenues and the means to combat suffering and to actually bring suffering on other people. Which was never what the church was meant to be about. And so 
the writer to the Hebrews points out, says, remember the former days you were enlightened and at your enlightening, you began to receive a great conflict of suffering. And what did that suffering look like? What did it look like? Let's let's kind of walk through the brief explanation that the writer to the Hebrews gives about what that suffering looked like. First. Verse 33, they were partly made to be a public spectacle. Christians were looked down on. <clears throat> they were insulted. They were reviled. They were belittled. They were increasingly marginalized in their culture and in their society. Does this sound vaguely familiar? If you're not been paying attention, there are certain aspects of Western culture that are attempting to do that to Christianity right now. And my question, and it's one that I don't think we've wrestled well enough with, the modern Western evangelical response to this suffering, to being made a public spectacle, to being belittled and insulted and reviled. What has our response to that been? Has it been to also belittle, insult and revile our enemies? Do we still have the clout to inflict suffering on others in their effort to inflict suffering on us? Do we follow whatever pathway we can to alleviate as much suffering as possible for as long as we possibly can? Is this the really best and truest way for us to endure this kind of suffering? I don't think people are asking these questions. But they received this Suffering, they received this conflict, they received this belittlement, they became public spectacles. And not only did it happen to them, it also happened to those that they loved. And how did they respond? How did they respond to this belittlement, this marginalization, this reviling that they received? First, it says that they had, verse 34, Sympathy toward the prisoners in whatever way that they could. Now, I want to make a point here. This isn't about prison ministry generically. Like, hey, we're going to go down to the prison and, you know, all these guys who murdered a whole bunch of people and stole a bunch of stuff and, you know, dealt a bunch of drugs. We're going to go and show them the love of Jesus. This is not what this is talking about, though. There's a space for that. That's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about are people who, in part of being made public spectacles, had been imprisoned for the gospel. And the church was going to minister to the prisoners of the gospel in any way that they could. Can you imagine how bold that is? You live in a culture and a society that is putting people in prison for being Christians. And as a Christian, you show up to the prison to minister to the Christian who's in jail for being a Christian. Taking a really great chance of being put in jail yourself. That's remarkable. That's how they responded. How else did they respond? And, you know, they say confession is good for the soul. So I'm going to go ahead and confess something to all of you at Sylvania Church this morning. I've had an extra week because of my illness to think about preaching this sermon. And I have spent almost all of that time 
trying to figure out what to say about the second half of verse 34. Because we live in America. We don't just live in America. We live in the Grand Republic of Texas in America. Amy, I see I get an amen for that one. We, we live in a world where the second flag option of our state is a picture of a, a weapon we stole from another country and we can get back to them. Like that, don't, no, they gave it to us. They didn't give it to you. They loaned it to you and you never gave it back to them. Say, Philip, how dare you speak of Texas this way? Because I'm from Tennessee and if it weren't from Tennessee, you'd still be Mexico. I just want to let you know that. <laughs> don't, don't fight me on that. That's just true. Don't give me a hard time about that. Learn your history. Thank you, Tennessee volunteers. We're glad we could help. Show us some love if you ever decide to become a country again. We might want to join you. I'm going to get a lunch for that one. Anyway. I had a really hard time with verse 34, knowing the cultural context that we live in right now. Nobody has a problem going to the prison and, and trying to meet up with prisoners. A lot of people will even be brave enough to do that, take a chance to be thrown in jail themselves. But notice the second half of verse 34. And they accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. Do you understand why I'm having a hard time figuring out what I need to say in the culture environment that we live in where we are right now about that statement? Because I can guarantee you Based on everything that I've seen in the news and all forms of social media and private conversations that I've had with people, I've not had conversation with one person, and I'll go ahead and confess, myself included, that would be cool with the seizure of their property for the gospel. I sure wouldn't be joyful about it. If it got seized at all. Because we live in a world, friends, where we have an avenue... To stop suffering if we want to. And don't think that they didn't have that avenue. So we live in a different world and we have a different government. We have a different situation. We have a di- Listen, the Romans let their enemies stay armed. Rome was not a disarmament nation. The Maccabean revolt shows that people were willing to take the arms they have and rise up against the oppressive Roman government. The Jews had done this before in the past. They had gotten to a place where they said, you know what, enough's enough. And I don't really care what this is about anymore. You're not going to treat us this way. And it was an entire section of Hebrew history. that's often not well known. Even Jesus told his disciples to bring some swords with him to the crucifixion. And yet. These people joyfully allowed the seizure of their property for the gospel's sake. I don't know what to do with that. I know what I should say right now. It's not hard to know what to say right now. What's hard is that how do I personally feel about that? And if I were to say what I should say about this, how are you going to feel about that? Because the tendency that we have and the political power system that we've got in evangelical America is to excuse verses like this one away. Well, they didn't have our constitution or they didn't have our government system or they didn't have our this or they didn't have our that. So they didn't have our Second Amendment. They didn't have X and they didn't have Y and they didn't have Z. You know what? There's no asterisk in this text. It says the people came to take their stuff away from them over the gospel and they joyfully let them take it. 
And it's very challenging to me. It has been for two weeks. Kind of sort of think God let me get sick so I can have an extra week to try to get my head on straight about this. How would I respond to persecution in the gospel? How would I respond to that? This is how they responded. They were willing to be made a public spectacle, to be belittled and marginalized and insulted and reviled, to be imprisoned and to have their property seized with joy. That's how they responded. And friends, I want to tell you. That's hard. That's hard. Let's go ahead and just let it settle real deep down in. That's hard. It's easy to fight back. Fighting back is easy. Letting the glory of Christ be made manifest through suffering. That's hard. That's hard. But that's what they did. And why did they do that? Look at the last part of verse 34. Knowing that you yourselves have a better possession and a lasting one. This stuff's all temporal. It's cliche, but it's true. You can't take it with you. Can't. What did Jesus say about this similar thing? If you're being compelled To go a certain distance, go further. If they're wanting to take the cloak, let them have the inner coat also. This is what he said. And I'm going to go ahead and confess, because like I said at the start of all this, confession is good for the soul. I don't like it one bit more than you do. Everything in me wants to find the theological loophole that lets me go open up the cabinet in my closet and come out blazing like my ancestors that helped win you your state. I just had to throw that back in there one more time. So like, this is, this is what is in me. What's in me is, oh, oh, oh no. Maybe you folks in the Northern part, but not us folks from the Southern part. Folks from the south side of town, we don't roll like this. Like everything in me wants to say that, but the text does not allow it. And I don't like it. I don't like it. Say, man, I've never been to a church where a pastor stands up in the pulpit and says the stuff in the Bible he doesn't like. I don't like this. It doesn't set well with me. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. But this is how they responded. Joyfully allowing the seizure of their property. Boldly taking the chance to visit those in prison for the gospel, knowing themselves might also be put into prison with them. Being reviled, being insulted, being belittled, being marginalized and not responding in kind. Why? Because they know they have something better waiting for them. 
And notice I said that I don't like this and I struggle with this. And I have to ask myself and I'm going to ask myself this question and you can participate in the asking of this question with yourself if you'd like. I often wonder if the reason why I have such a hard time with this concept is because I don't really believe like I should that there really is something better waiting for me than this. And the reason that I'm so Bent on clinging to what is here now is that I haven't really fully bought into the way I should the greatness and the glory of the later on. Help my unbelief. And so then he challenges them. In verse 35, he says, don't therefore don't don't throw away your confidence. It has a great reward. You need to endure. You have need of endurance. Why? So that when you've done the will of God. You'll receive what has been promised. And then he turns to the greatest, most hopeful thing that can be turned to in verses 37 through 39, and that is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is that future better, that thing that they should be longing for. They had come to understand fully that they had something better coming, a lasting possession. And he turns their attention to that lasting possession. says, he who is coming will come and will not delay. I think one of the reasons why we cling to this world and its goods so tightly is that our eyes are not lifted up to the future glory of the coming of Christ. We, like five of the ten virgins, have slumbered and we've fallen asleep and we do not have oil for our lampstands. And we think that we have all the time in the world. And he comes like a thief in the night. We are ill prepared for his coming. Because our longing and our attention is turned to earthly things rather than the future glory of the resurrected Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews points their attention, says he who is coming, he will come and he will not delay. And he points out once again that the righteous shall live by faith. Clinging to the things of this world is not living by faith. That's living by sight. Longing for a greater possession that you cannot see, that you cannot touch, that you cannot hear, that you cannot smell, that you cannot taste. That is faith. He says the righteous will live by faith. But we must have faith unto perseverance. We must not shrink back. Notice what he says in verse 39. We are not to be as those who shrink back to destruction. But we are to be those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. And friends, I'm concerned for myself, for each of you. That we as Christians have lost the practice of perseverance and endurance. 
that we get tired. We get fatigued. Not just in resisting evil, but also in doing good. We have a tendency to just move toward the easiest path of neutrality. It's a really hard work to do good. It's really hard work to stand against that which is evil. It's really easy to just sort of be apathetic and not care. And Christians are called to endure. We are called to persevere. We are called to stand against those things which God hates. And we are called to stand regularly in those things which God loves. And we're not supposed to get a timeout. So, but Philip, I get tired. It gets hard. I do all this good and I do all this good and I do all this good and I don't receive anything from it. I don't receive any benefit. And the more good I do, the more suffering I get a lot of times. And, and, and the more people tend to hate me and I get marginalized. I get belittled. It hurts my business. It hurts my family and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the scripture doesn't have an asterisk next to it. Well, unless people aren't reciprocating and then you can just stop doing that. That's not what it says. You know, I stand against this evil and I stand against the sin in me and I stand against the struggle that I have with my sin. And that causes me to get belittled. Hey, why don't you just loosen up a little bit? Why don't you just have a little bit of fun? It's really not that big a deal. Why you? And it's just taxing on all sides. That's what Christians are called to. We are called to perseverance. We are called to endurance. So I ask a question today. We've been asking these hard questions at the end of all these sermons. What right? What privilege? What possession am I striving to protect or preserve rather than persevering in the midst of suffering to the glory of Jesus? What temporal thing am I clinging to for dear life rather than releasing that thing and persevering To the glory of Jesus. Friends, I don't know what that list looks like for you. I know what it looks like for me. Got a lot of little idols built up in my life. I've got a lot of things that are protected all cost kinds of things in my life. That are not truly about the glory of Christ. They're about the glory of me. And my ability to protect whatever that thing is. Rather than trusting that God will do as he pleases with that thing. Because here's the deal, friends. I can usher in all the protection in the world against the possessions and the rights and the privileges and the people that are in my life. But if God longs for that to be removed, it shall be removed. And there's no amount of fighting or striving or warfare on my part that will thwart the almighty will of God. And I might can keep my hands clutched around whatever it is that I'm trying to keep a grip on. And I might can keep most all of humanity off of it just by the sheer power of my own will and desire to keep other people away from those things that I long to keep the safest. 
But friends, hear me now. When the Lord God Almighty brings his hands down to pry open my fist, there is no effort on his part and my hands will come apart and that thing will be done with whatever God wants to do with it. It'd be far better for me to hold on to everything in this world with a very loose grip acknowledging God's sovereign place in all things and willingly and joyfully accepting whatever it is that God brings into my life if it means that Christ Jesus will be made much of. Why? Because he and he alone, not anything that I have in this world, not family, not friends, not privileges, not rights, not location of birth, not language spoken, not level of education. Nothing that I have in this life compares to the glory of the hope that is coming with Christ Jesus one day. None of it. And friends, it's high time that I, and I would pray you, if you're not, begin living our Christian lives this way. With an eye to the glory of Christ. Because he has a better hope for the future. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for incredibly challenging texts like this one. And for the discomfort that they cause and the way that they make us question everything about our lives. Father, give us the courage, give us the boldness, give us the grace to cast down our idols. Give us a heart oriented toward the glory of Jesus and the future hope that he brings. Let us understand, let us believe in the temporalness of this world that we live in. Let our lives be bent toward the eternal. Father, forgive us. Forgive us of the idols that we cling to. We thank you in advance for the work of grace that you will do in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song response together. Mm-hmm.